Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the classicist, the namesake of this podcast is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Victor is also the Wayne and Marsha Busk Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor Davis Hanson is a best-selling author. Uh, I hope folks have purchased and have read his tremendous World War II uh, history called The Second World Wars. Victor also has a forthcoming book that many of us are really, really looking forward to. It's called The Dying Citizen. It will be out this October. How can you pre-order it? Go to victorhanson.com. That's Victor's website known as Private Papers. You'll see a link of uh, the Amazon link for the book there. Also on Private Papers, uh, you'll see a lot of original writing uh, from Victor. And that's basically what we're going to talk about today on The Classicist, some of those pieces he's written there. Um, Victor is a farmer, a classicist, military historian. He's an essayist at American Greatness. On Facebook, you can find his page. You can find the Victor Davis Hanson fan club. But I, I'd like to recommend VDH's Morning Cup. Put it, in the, put it in the search function. You'll find it. And if you're on Twitter, follow Victor at VD Hanson at VD Hansen. So Victor, uh, I'm Jack Fowler, by the way, I am the former publisher of National Review. And I think this week I start my new position and I'm a senior philanthropy consultant at American Philanthropic. But Victor, uh, we're going to talk about some of the pieces you've written on uh, uh, private papers. And there's a three-part series on the firebombing of uh, Japan. You've also written some beautiful uh, pieces on, on your growing up on the farm, in particular, your, let's call it interconnectedness with, with uh, God's creatures who, who surrounded and lived on and above the farm. I'd also like to talk, since we've just passed Memorial Day, about a couple of uh, war movies. And also, Victor, um, your experience, if I may call it that, at the American Battlefield uh, Battlefields and Monuments uh, Commission, if you might give us a little, um, a little discussion about what that institution does. So Victor, we'll talk a little bit about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but the firebombing of Japan that you focus on is a specific event, and it happened on March 9th, 1945. Curtis LeMay, the great general who you have praised um, on, on our podcast, you've written about him at length in, uh, I think, in the Savior Generals. Uh, he ordered uh, 334 B-29 heavy bombers loaded with over 2,000 tons of napalm bombs to hit carpet bombs, so to say, at low, at, uh, low height 
Tokyo, a very wooden city. It was a catastrophic event, Victor, as you know, as you know and you've written about, uh, between uh, 80,000 to 120,000 people are believed to have died um, in that attack. This is not Hiroshima. That came afterwards, and Nagasaki came afterwards. So these, this event in itself, uh, coupled with the others, though, have led for two generations, uh, or maybe we're even into a third generation, of ethicists and other critics of America to criticize what happened on that day. What are they talking about? What are the main contentions, the critiques of what happened this day? It was the sheer loss of life that most of the dead were, were uh, civilians, that this was an area bombing. It wasn't, you know, precision uh, bombing. Uh, that it was one-sided, you know, it was poor Japanese, you know, they were, they, they didn't, they, they couldn't put up much a fight against this onslaught of, of bombers. Uh, there's a claim that in this area of Tokyo, there were no significant military targets. And then this kind of 2020 hindsight view, which I think is truly bogus, but well, the war was ending anyway, soon. We knew, we know that now. I don't think we knew that then. Why, kill all these civilians at this point when World War II or the war in the, in the Far East was going to end. So Victor, these are the claims that have been repeated over, they're taught in schools of how many millions of hours have been spent discussing this. But you take this on, you, if you want to uh, contend with any, as I explained the events, please do. Uh, but talk about the, this, the validity or the invalidity, Victor, of this really important and truly catastrophic but important event during World War II. Well, I mean, we start with the, with the facts that the March 9th and it extended into the early hours of March 10th fire raid by this huge fleet, I think actually 290 or so, 280 had bombs. And then there were these other pathfinders that made up the... Uh, that dropped incendiary marks where to follow them. But that was the most lethal attack, I think, in the history of warfare. I think the official death toll of 100,000, 125 was probably less than the actual number, which could have been much, much greater. But it burned out about 11 acres of downtown Japan, which had been pretty pristine. And it used to be that when we talked about amorality in the West in World War II, people focused on the British bombing and the American bombing the next day at Dresden and to a lesser extent Hamburg. And it was considered not necessary. And we suddenly decided Bomber Harris was a war criminal, et cetera, et cetera. But recently, we, I think part of the woke decade, we've gone over now to the Japanese bombing and um, entered another criterion that unlike the Germans, this was a, a different people uh, racially and that therefore white America hated the Japanese in a way that they didn't even hate the Germans. So while they burned American bombers, uh, dropped incendiaries on Dresden, they really dropped them on Tokyo. And therefore it was a war crime or it was unnecessary, et cetera. So I, I and th these three essays that are on the website, victorhanson.com, I, I just tried to go over the traditional criteria, how you judge that and let the reader judge for himself. But the Japanese army military in World War II killed more people versus the number it lost, that death ratio 
than any other military, including the German army. By that, I mean of the 65 to 70 million people, about 80% of those who that were killed in World War II, of that large finger, about 85% were out of uniform and they were killed. And the vast majority were killed by German and Japanese soldiers. But Japan in particular, largely because of its 15 million plus civilians that butchered in China and the five to seven million Asians that it killed, uh, the 500,000 uh, allied troops uh, that it killed or they uh, executed or were lost in experiments or prisoner of war camps versus the 3 million that it was lost. And that is lost sight of. And what that meant was, Jack, in that last year of war, the worst month of US casualties was April, 1945, not 1942, 43, 44. And people after the Okinawa disaster, they said, you know what? We've got to continue this bombing that started a month earlier. And we've got to, they didn't know if the bomb would work, but a lot of people didn't know about it. And so there was a, a sense that you can't, invade the Japanese mainland because it'll be a bloodbath. The second thing is there was no way that you were going to avoid that uh, campaign except with a B-29, this new experimental bomber that had been rushed into production, huge bomber, much, much bigger, uh, a third as much larger as a B-17. This was the real fortress, not the flying fortress. We were told the the super fortress, it could fly at uh, 240 miles an hour. It could go up to 30,000 feet with its crew of 11. The, the 50 caliber machine guns and in some occasions a 20 millimeter cannon, they could be synchronized by a central fire control governor, uh, gunner. It was a computerized system. It was pressurized. It had an enormous 3,200 mile range. So all you had to do was find an island somewhere 1,600 miles from Tokyo. And they found it in the Mariana Islands, Tinian, Guam, and Saipan. Okay, so they brought this bomber there and immediately they discovered certain things that when it had been based in China and India, it gulped so much fuel that you could only really deliver it, not by air or by dangerous land convoy, but by sea. So you had to have these huge 7,000 foot runways. The second thing they noticed was the air over Japan was uh, turbulent because of the jet stream. And it could go from anywhere from 60 miles to 200 miles an hour at certain elevations. And the Norden bombsite was not as accurate as people had said. The improved Norden bombsite was not accurate. And then they discovered that while in theory you could put in... 10 tons of explosives, but when you try to go up to 30,000 feet, the engines overheated. And then they discovered that when you're flying largely at night, 1,600 miles one way over the empty ocean, you only have about 20 minutes of airtime. So if you're going to a traditional bomb run and you get a clouded target, you know, you have to make that huge loop and go back again. Right. And B-29s were running out of gas, at least until they got Iwo Jima. And so the whole multi-billion, and this was a $2 billion project, twice the cost of the Manhattan Project. It was a mess. And they were bombing off target. They were losing planes at a, at a rate at that point of about 2%. And you do 30 of 35 required missions and 70% of your planes are gone. Right. So they brought in a 38-year-old, what they 
thought was a maverick. He was a brilliant Curtis LeMay. He had revolutionized uh, fighter tactics. He was personally courageous. He'd fl flown on some of the most dangerous B-17. And they sacked a very moral uh, uh, General Hansel who wanted to use the B-29 the way it was intended. And LeMay said, you know, you're not getting any results. And within a month or two, he said, I have a new idea. We're going to make this thing into a huge dive bomber. So we're going to go in low at five or 6,000 feet. We're going to go in at night. We're going to lighten the plane from some of its defensive armament. We're going to load up to 20,000 uh, pounds, 10 full tons of incendiaries. And we're not going to napalm. And we're new Harvard University uh, pro joint project, I think, with DuPont. And we're going to go in low and we're going to save the engines. You don't have to climb. We'll get more power. And then once we get on the jet stream, it will not be the enemy. It'll be the ally because we'll drop these bombs and we'll get a rush. We'll be going so fast at 300 miles an hour. They won't see us. We'll be below the arc of the flak guns. Once we drop them, it doesn't matter if we're on target or not. And the wind will fan the flames. And they said, this will be morally justified for the following reasons. Number one, the Japanese are killing 10,000 people a day and nobody can stop them in China and Asia and the Pacific. This is the only way you can stop this. Number two, they have decentralized fear of uh, precision bombing. They decentralize much of their productive capacity into family oriented neighbor oriented uh, centers of production in municipal areas, sort of like what Hezbollah has done in Beirut. In other words, a propeller would be delivered from a house or a group of houses to a central assembly plant, but it would be very hard uh, for the Americans to fight all of those individual, fight against all of them and bomb and destroy those individual targets. And then they were going to drop leaflets and they did, but I'm not sure how moral or ethical that was. You get a leaflet and says, you've got to go up in the mountains for the next three months because we're going right. to destroy all your cities. I don't know what you do when the Japanese authorities won't let you. But nevertheless, that was the argument. And so they did it. On, and the first raid was on March 9th, and it shocked everybody. The planes came in fast. They came in low. The casualties went down. They had enough fuel to get back. There was less uh, loss for equipment damage. The engines didn't overheat. And the results were devastating. They destroyed half of the industrial potential of the Japanese corridor at, centered in Tokyo. And then from March 9th all through the rest of the month and in April and in May and in June, they destroyed about 75% of the Japanese industrial potential. And then they turned the B-29s loose on mining harbors, et cetera. And so... Uh, the May said, we don't need the atomic bomb once it was dropped. We were destroying cities. And the irony is in this terrible calculus of war, one thing that Hiroshima did, killing 85,000 people or Nagasaki 60, it stopped the fire raids. Because remember, the war was over in Europe on March, uh, excuse me, May 9th and 10th. Mm -hmm. And we had about 8,000 B-24s and B-17s, and the British had about three or 4,000 heavy Lancasters that had a bomb load, almost like a B-29. I don't even mention the B-25 and B-26 middle bombers. And there were plans to bring a lot of those bombers over to Okinawa, which was only 350 miles. And we were in the process of building these huge air bases. 
So you can imagine had we not dropped the bomb in August, we would have probably been bombing from the Marianas as we were, but there wasn't much targets left, but still napalming small cities. And then we would be conventionally and napalming two or three missions a day with a force from Okinawa that was two to three times larger than the B-29 force. And we were bringing in another 1,500 to 2,000 B-29s off the production line. So that's what we were doing. And we did it because that generation said, we're not going to go through an Iwo Jima anymore. We're not going to go into Okinawa and lose 50,000 casualties. And we're not going to invade Japan. We're going to plan to invade Japan, but we're going to either make it impossible for the Japanese to resist uh, either with firebombing or then later the atomic bombs. And in the process, we're going to shorten this war and we're going to stop this uh, killing machine called the Japanese Imperial Military. Well, Victor, what was it about the either the Japanese military or um, maybe influenced by Japanese culture? I'm not sure, but why the blood, why the bloodlust, why the ten thousand civilian deaths a day? What was it about the Japanese military that made that part of their uh, standard operating procedure? Well, it was similar to the Nazis, how they differed from Imperial Germany. I mean, that, that had been a militaristic society as Japan and the samurai uh, culture as well. But just as the Nazis were able to cap capitalize on historical developments and manipulate them and propagandize them, so did the Japanese military. And after the failure in the 1920s of constitutional government, a myth arose partly based on some factual basis, some reality, they said that we, lent our Navy and we joined the allies in World War I and then we were shut out of the spoils of World War I. We didn't get any colonies, we got nothing. And then we were said to be backward, but we beat the Russians in 1905 and six. And we sent a quarter million of our best students to France and Britain and Germany and learned artillery and armor and infantry tactics. But most importantly, we lent Japanese craftsmanship to these Western nautical design schools. Right. And we created a bigger Navy and a more sophisticated Navy than a lot of European powers. And then we uh, told or Asian neighbors that they had been victims of European, French, Dutch, and English colonialism. And we were going to liberate them. And they had a racial component. And they said, and we are racially superior, not just to other Asians, but to Occidentals as they use that term as well. And that was a powerful uh, narcotic for people in, 19, in the middle 1930s. They bumped into the Russians, of course, Portion 39, and it didn't work well in Manch along the Mongolian border. But in China, they used that racial superiority argument and the idea they were liberating the Chinese from the uh, nefarious fumes of colonialism. Right. And they had superior technology because they were superior people. And then they thrived on the appeasement and the isolation of Europe and the United States. And so what the result of all that is they got an inflated ability of their war potential. And what they didn't realize is that had they just left America alone and not gone into Pearl Harbor and not gone into Singapore, 
Hitler had already given them basically the entire Pacific uh, Dutch and French colonial system. In other words, they'd already occupied Southeast Asia from the France, the Vichy French right. were irrelevant. And the Dutch East Indies and the Shell oil fields were all there for them to take on impeded. And there was nobody who was gonna do anything about it. The United States wasn't gonna do anything and the British weren't gonna do anything. And then once they consolidated that empire, they might've gone after Britain while it was tied down in Europe. But the, what it did not wanna do was attack the United States because the United States had an industrial potential about 10 times larger than Japan. And uh, when you combine the Soviet Union and the British empire, uh, Japan realized that it was outnumbered as was its partner Germany by a magnitude of about five to one in terms of manpower, industrial production, military technology production, et cetera. Here's how the uh, collective, we'll call it an essay, even though it's three parts, it's about 2,500 words. It's, I do recommend it. Folks, again, it's at victorhanson.com. And here's how it ends. Uh, Victor writes, Japan sowed the winds of war with its atrocities and reaped history's most lethal single-day whirlwind. But the ferocity of the latter, 76 years later, makes us of a more affluent, safer, and leisured world wish that somehow we could have been New Testament rather than Old Testament warriors. But then again, the ghosts of those of Nanking or at Bataan, or who surrendered at Singapore, or of those rounded up in China after the Doolittle Raid, or of the South Korean comfort women, or of the quarter million subject to Japanese military crude lab experiments, or of the survivors of the Manila, Borneo, and Malay massacres might well beg to differ. So anyway, Victor, this is a wonderful piece. I'm so glad you wrote it. Folks who dig military history, military ethics, it's well worth your uh, reading and contemplating. Victor, while we're in a military mindset today, again, we're recording this right before Memorial Day, which I know is something you take uh, quite seriously. Uh, would you talk a little bit about uh, your, your, one of your former roles? You were, I'll call it a commissioner, I assume it's commission, for the American Battlefield and, and Monuments Commission, which um, oversees and administers across around the world, I think the Philippines and of course uh, any number of countries uh, in Europe, even in Mexico, in the, the Mexican War, uh, the uh, graves and monuments of America's war dead who were buried overseas. Victor, you were on that commission. Would you talk a little bit about it? And if there actually was any, I assume you've seen any number of them. I know there are dozens of, the, of, of these uh, cemeteries and final resting places, but if there was any one of them that maybe particularly struck you as uh, sacred. Yeah, the American Battle Monuments Commission was formed right after World War I to deal with a new event in American history, that is 117,000 people were killed 3,500 miles away. And there was a question arose, most of them were interred very quickly because of uh, the, exigencies of war and they didn't know what to do when the war ended and about half of uh, the families of the dead asked that the remains be shipped home but the other half felt that somehow it might be a better commemoration of their family members sacrifice that they be buried and with typical American precision technology organization and morality 
Pershing appointed this commission. And what happened was that we planned these very beautiful cemeteries. And if anybody's interested, there's a wonderful book on the commission by Tom Thomas Connor, a Hillsdale endowed military history professor that discusses the commission. And uh, you should all look at it. But the idea was that we were going to honor the dead and remind everybody what, what had happened in World War I. And so we had these wonderful uh, cemeteries and they're mostly, at least until 1941, they were mostly in Belgium and France, obviously. And then when World War II broke out, uh, the same problem happened, but at a magnitude of four times larger. And so when that war was over, uh, by this time, the commission had been well-established and there were local groups, believe it or not, in World War I that they would raise when veterans came home in the 1920s or 30s, they said, you know what, we didn't get adequate recognition for our performance at Bella Wood or at uh, the Ardennes. And so they would make their own monument there and kind of endow a church or a statue. And so what happened, the ABM, then th these groups died off, the people, the veterans died, sometimes they were not funded, and they had to make decisions about whether to incorporate these monuments, hence the name monuments as well. And in World War II, about half of the people who fell overseas uh, were buried in these cemeteries, and they're, they have very strict rules about the, the type of grass, the cari, Italian marble, white marble that's used, the exact dimensions. They hire families, to give one example, uh, at the Normandy battlefield or the, the, the battlefield at Ham Cemetery that Patton's buried at, they hire families over generations that are very loyal to the United States. And so a commission member then, it's a presidential appointee, they are responsible for adjudicating the issues that come up about these, uh, these uh, cemeteries. And they can be from the, the practical about, you know, there's flooding or the water table is rising or the one in Tunisia doesn't have enough water or we're having political protest or they can be existential, philosophical. People can say, you know, war is bad. So a European uh, group wants to partner with us. And so out in front of the Normandy uh, cemetery, they want to have a peace pavilion, i.e. they want to they want to mm -hmm. get a lot of the attention that, that otherwise a cemetery does, but for different reasons. Not so much about the tragedy of war and the sacrifice to keep us free, but about the futility of ever fighting at all. And so there was a lot of uh, controversies on that. One of the largest, after the, the movie Saving Private Ryan, it turns out that about 65 or 70% at the time I was on the commission of all of the intendants to all of the cemeteries. And they ranged from Tunisia to the Mexican War Cemetery in Mexico City to Punchbowl, Hawaii, to the Philippines. They're all over the world. But most people, because of the movie and the accessibility, go to the Normandy Cemetery and right above the beaches of Normandy for its, you know, its commemorative resonance with people. So um, there were ways to try to encourage people to go to the other equally impressive, I don't know if that's the right word, but but solemn, they're very beautiful places. They are. And yeah. uh, so that that's what the commission does. And I, uh, they tend to be political, although the Bush administration that appointed me 
when I was on the commission, there were people that were apolitical. I thought I was, at least in this capacity. But when the Obama administration came in after the election of 2008, within weeks, um, maybe even days, we got a letter, at least I did. I think most members of the commission said that you would be, um, yeah. you're resigning, you have to leave the commission, your tenure is now over and you have to surrender your passport. They gave each of us a passport if you wanted to visit and inspect all of the, uh, the battlefields. I did inspect about 12 of them, but I, I tried not to ever build a government for it. I, I always say if I was in Europe right. or North Africa, I will go and look at a particular uh, and talk to the people who were running it or the superintendent and see if there were any questions or anything that would be brought to their attention. But again, I, if, if, if people are interested, there's a fascinating book by Thomas Connor about the history of the American Battlefield Monuments Commission. Well, thanks for that, Victor. Now, I'm quite a fan of old movies, as are you. I really must tip my hat every year to uh, Turner Classic Movies, which does dedicate Memorial Day weekend uh, to uh, war movies. You know, there are war movies that are truly touching about war. There are some kind of goofy, you know, military-related movies. Not that they're bad movies, but Kelly's Heroes or No Time for Sergeants is not exactly you know, war movie in, in a class of uh, uh, the best years of our life. But I had asked you earlier before the show, I said, Victor noted, I, I'll tell you this, there, there were three or four movies that if I saw they were on, I would stop everything, drop everything just to watch them. And two of them, Victor, one was the, the, the Red Badge of Courage, which is about the Civil War. It's a very short movie. I just think it's ter terrific movie. And uh, the pa Paths of Glory um, about... Uh, a trial uh, and French tri French military trial from World War One. I. I mean, I, I also love Battleground, and uh, they were expendable. The great Robert Montgomery, John Wayne movie. Victor, the first two. I, I don't know. I'm just asking. You, you can have no opinion. I wonder if you had any opinion of Paths of Glory or Red Badge of Courage, and oh, yeah. uh, and if you have any particular military war movie that that really matters to you. Well, those are excellent movies. Kurt Douglas was was wonderful in Paths of Glory, and it was a very tragic movie. It was based on a historical incident, a little bit exaggerated, about the mutinies that followed 1916, 1970 in the French army that was finally worn out until Pétain came in and made necessary uh, reforms that stopped the... They were People were not getting food that was warm or even edible. They were in the trenches. The wounded were not being attended to. They were sent out over the top in frontal attacks. And finally, a number of companies just said, and actually it spread to thousands, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to run into German machine guns. And then they selectively decided to decimate units. And I think they ordered 30 or 40 dead, but they commuted those sentences. But in the movie, three of them uh, are executed, even though they're not culpable for any crime individually. But it was, it's a commentary on the insanity of the uh, military establishment in times of war. There's a couple of modern ones that I've really liked that don't get too much attention. We all like uh, Saving Private Ryan was a great movie. Black Hawk Down was a great modern war movie. Uh, the Thin Red Line was wonderful, I thought. It had a lot of great marquee actors in it. A little bit earlier, I think people like The Great Escape. George Patton, uh, the movie Patton was good, oh, although terrific. I felt that yeah. it was 
it shorted really patent and uh, the Carl Malden dash Omar Bradley uh, reflected the fact that Bradley was an advisor to the movie. It sounded like he was the judicious wise uncle that had to con constantly monitor the silly inane uh, emotional patent when in fact it was Patton who was fluent in French, well-read in languages, studious, careful, concerned about his troops, systematic, and was a much more gifted general. You, you, are, you are not the president of the Omar Bradley fan club, I believe. No, I like, I mean, I, I have nothing critical to say of him, but if right. one were to be disinterested and compare his generalship or his role in World War II compared to that of George S. Patton, you would come to a conclusion right. even different than the movie, which right. is supposedly a, a tribute to Patton. Uh, but two that I really like, the modern ones, I mean, we can talk about The Last of the Mohicans was a great Michael Mann movie. Black Hawk Dawn was a great movie. I thought that was, it was, okay. uh, it was wonderful. But there's two that I really like, and one of them is Breaker Morant. Oh, yeah. Uh, about the... Uh, execution of two uh, Australian soldiers by the British military during the Boer War. And that's based on a historical incident. Although Breaker Morant was a little bit more dubious character than, I think it's Edward Winward, who's Woodward. Woodward? Right, I can't the Equalizer, yeah. yeah. Yeah, The Equalizer. He's a great actor. He died, right. but he, it's a wonderful movie. And so uh, I thought that was... Uh, you're right, that's my, terrific. My yeah. favorite war movie, and this is, is Das Boot, The Boat. And oh yeah. The German it's a long two hours and forty minutes in German. But uh Jurgen Prochnow, I think, is the the captain. He's a brilliant actor. And it's again about the futility of war. There are just scenes in that when they break out and they're supposed to die and they're sitting there dying under they can't submerge, they can't move the submarines, and he's yelled at people before, and all of a sudden the crew comes together and they save the uh the submarine they're going to get back out of the mediterranean break out and when um they open the hatch they just say not yet not yet we and they they escape they go up the coast of france the war the movie is almost over they've survived when almost all the u-boats that have been destroyed and 75 percent of them were remember forty thousand submariners were killed and then they get to their uh fortified pins which were indestructible from uh area bombing but i think they're at Le Havre, and they go in there and then the mosquito fighter planes that had rockets and machine guns can go and pull up right before and they machine gun and destroy most of the crew so they were home and safe but throughout that movie it was what a tragedy that these heroic men have enlisted in a cause that's that's evil and beneath them and the captain seems to understand that. So they're very critical of Hitler, but it would be very hard to know what to do when you're, you're trapped into not fight for your country, you're gonna be executed or your family persecuted. And right. yet, if you don't fight, you're fighting for somebody who wants to kill you. Maybe their reasons are better than yours, but that doesn't escape the, you can't escape the fact that you're trapped in a tragic lose-lose situation. And that really came through in the movie. Well, Victor, let's end uh, this uh, edition of The Classicist uh, for the Victor H Davis Hanson Show, again, by returning to your uh, website, victorhanson.com, private papers, where of late you've begun to write about growing up on your family farm, I believe you're fifth generation 
um, there, and particularly the uh, other residents of the farm, not the grapes, not the almonds, the persimmons, uh, but the animals uh, that are there now, but that you you experienced, knew, dealt with, exterminated, and other things uh, as a child. Uh, it's a couple. Of, I, you have a new one. It's called "Child's Child's World of Animals." You talk it, you write at length about um, owls. You've written about owls before. You also write about possums, and I wish you'd talk about about. Um, both of them. But before you do, I think you wrote in a, a, a few weeks back that there are some, maybe some birds of a kind that that just live a damn long time and may actually be the same birds that you witnessed and, you know, dealt with from your, from when you were little boy, uh, Hanson. Is that true? Or am I, am I uh, imagining that? Sort of. Uh, <laughs> what I meant truth. was that uh, when I've lived in this house m- most of my life, right, and I can remember stories of people who lived here before me and my family telling me stories. So what I'm getting at is I know a woodpecker probably lives three or four years, but the woodpeckers I see out destroying the barn look exactly the same. Yeah, species. sure. And okay. the bumblebees that are in only one portion of the yard, only one portion, look exactly the same as I remember them 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. Yeah. And when I was a little boy, my grandfather would say, well, that was where the wisteria is. Those are the same bumblebees I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So you get the impression that these critters or whatever you want to call them have a secret life of their own, that they inhabit your house and grounds and they know exactly where what belongs to them. And if you think you're going to go out there and say, this is mine, get out of here, you're, you're kind of crazy. They've been Co- here long. Cohabitants. We'll talk yeah. about the your particular experiences, Victor, with owls and a kind of painful, but uh, yeah, kind of painful story about possums. Yeah, you know, my parents were really good. I guess they would be called free rangers. They just turned us loose on 135 acres. And we had all of these networks of neighbors or hired men that you'd bump into when you were six, seven, and eight. You know, I'd be running through the vines and Delmas Marshall, a guy from the Oklahoma diaspora, would be out digging and he'd say something to me about, Victor, tonight I'm going to get a pole with a flashlight and we're going to go up in those pecan trees near your grandpa. And we're going to get those damn possums that are eating the chicken eggs. And then we, I'd be scared and I'd look up there. I said, there's no possums. Yes, they're up there, and he would knock one off, and he called it polling possums, and then they would splat, and it was it was gross, and these these and then he would have a black sense of humor in the sense of he's not playing dead, Victor, he's dead, <laughs> and uh, it was just a very brutal but honest way of encountering animals, and one of the things that I really liked were owls, and we were terrified of these great horned owls. We have. They're still here, the same family. But when I was younger, I think I weighed 50 pounds and we would, my twin brother and I would ride our bikes all over the ranch with dirt tires. And these big things would be, they're low hanging. <laughs> I mean, they, they hang out low. Right. And that, by that, I mean three or four feet. And then they'll swoop along the ground. And every once in a while, when we come, the one would swoop right by us. And we remembered the Wizard of Oz, how they picked up the, uh, the flying monkeys, picked up. Right. The, and we thought, right. oh, my God. 
and we would go run, we would turn around and hide, and then we'd wait till it went back. We'd run back to my, ride back to my parents, and my dad would say, you know, you're 50 pounds, and that damn owl's three pounds, figure it out. <laughs> but never, you know, they might yeah. peck you or be careful right. about their talons. And uh, so I got to really, I see them every day growing up, and then we had a we have a barn still there made out of eucalyptus poles in 1871. And we had these white barn owls fleck speckled and they kind of patrolled the whole area. And it was the weirdest thing in the world. They had these talons and they'd stick into the cracks of this old redwood siding. And then they'd hang there, not like a bat, but upright, almost like they had right wing, right angle legs. Right. They were the exact same color as the whitewash. And then you'd get up in the morning you'd see a squirrel and then choo, it was it disappeared and then we would go uh look at their feces in fact one of our uh high school friends later wrote uh made a prize-winning science science fair project by examining the feces and reconstructing all the skeletons of all the types of animals they ate <laughs> and uh she she was really one joan odomol she did it all over uh, the area wow. but my but the weird, tragic thing is every once in a while, these very clever, sophisticated owls would stick their talons in too much and they would get hooked. And I don't know if the temperature or the moisture expanded the wood or what, but they couldn't get out. And we never see this happen. We could hear it, wake up, but we didn't know what it was. And then when you would go out there in the morning and way up on the top of the barn, 30 feet above the ground, there'd be this beautiful owl dead and hanging by one talon. He was, uh. he freed three or four and he just had one left and he was worn out and died. Uh. And I think I buried maybe five, six or seven of them. And next, next for the next submission, just as a foretaste, there's another thing, it's called the Enchanted Grove. I, I wrote it and this is very interesting, very quickly, but there was no lumber here in the San Joaquin Valley. You had to go to the Sierra and everybody was planting vineyards and they needed stakes and they needed uh, poles for their end post to tie the wire, and they needed trusses for their, for their barns. And mm -hmm. the Sierra G Gigantea, the Sequoia Gigantea wood would not work, thank God, because they're monumental trees, but they tried it and they split. And it turns out that they couldn't really grow trees because there was no water here. It's, it's, it was a desert before the California Water Project. So they imported the idea of bringing a blue gum eucalyptus species from Australia. And every farm around here had one to two to three to four acres of eucalyptus. And these things got enormous. I'm not talking 40 or 50, but 200 feet, 250 feet. And the, the leaves were full of oil. So when they fell, they were evergreen, but the leaves would, would shed and then that oil would permeate the ground and it was a natural herbicide. So there was not a lot of weeds in there. It was, and it was pitch black. And we had a neighbor right on our pole that had inherited one of these. And you couldn't really take them out because they had enormous roots and you'd only gain two or three acres of farmland. And when you did take them out, uh, you couldn't plant anything because the ground had been ruined by the eucalyptus oil over 50 or right. 60 years. And then they, the eucalyptus didn't really work. You couldn't mill it. It was crooked. It split. It was, it was as hard as steel. So our barn still has its uh, framework made out of eucalyptus in the 1870s. It's still there. And it, it's a wonderful wood and it's good for firewood. But my point is that they reverted to nature. 
So every little damn coyote who was getting crowded out by a tractor somewhere or a rare San Joaquin Valley kit fox or a golden eagle that got lost or came down from the mountains or a raccoon pack or whatever that is, they ended up in those things. And there were sparrow hawks, there was Cooper's hawks, there were red tail hawks, there was every type of sharp shin hawks. And it was really a menagerie, but it was scary. So if you were a little kid, you'd go in there and all of a sudden three coyotes would go right by you. Or you'd see two foxes. Or I remember going in there and all of a sudden I heard this little chirp, chirp. And there's a whole family of weasels, of all things. So we, the weasel family we'd always talk about. And then snakes were, rattlesnakes were wiped out of the valley in the 1870s by farmers. But uh, there were a lot of snakes in there. Garter snakes, gopher snakes, and a few rattlesnakes. So it was just a, a weird place for a young kid. And we were told, don't go in there. No, under no circumstances go into that dreadful forest. I don't know if they were kidding us or what my mom and right. dad, but one day I got up, looked around. I was six years old, seven years old, and I ran three quarters of a mile to the edge of the ranch and I plunged in and I went further and further and it was pitch black. And all of a sudden I'd see an owl's eye staring at me or I see uh -huh. a coyote yapping or I would see two foxes carrying their babies coming at me. And I was, you know, I was a little kid. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, nobody in our family, I guess, had been in the middle of it. Our neighbors were not on good terms with us at that time. We, I heard this, and I thought it was a Swiss yodeler or somebody. I'd seen, you know, from a Disney movie. Right. And I ran at full, full blast back home. And I woke <laughs> up my parents and I said, there's monsters in there. There's, there's ghosts. There's something in there. And they just laughed as loud as they could. And they said, the neighbor has a huge turkey farm, Victor. He doesn't want the ag inspectors to know where it is. He's had it for years, right in the middle of the enchanted dangerous grove. There's as much turkeys and he, that's where he farmed them. It's cool. It's shaded. And that's what you heard was turkey gobbling. <laughs> And then they said, they laughed and said, now don't go in there, meaning you want to go explore, go ahead. It's okay. okay. Are the grove still there on your property? Or It is, but um, the new owners have been cutting it down. I don't know why they're doing that because it's such a monument, I think for firewood, huh. but it's only, it's gone from five acres down to about an acre and it's been thinned out. Uh, and in the 1950s, we had what we called, I guess it's an ethnic slur now. So forgive me if I sound politically incorrect, but gypsy camps, people from Eastern Europe who were gypsies. And when the fair would come, they would participate in, they worked in it or, but they would camp out there because it was cool. Nobody seemed to own it. They thought, and they would stay there for weeks on end. And uh, there were a lot of, Really, uh, later when uh, I let, left graduate school and finished, I, I farmed here full time for five years. So I, I looked at it as an adult in my late 20s. And uh, I would go in there and to just look at with binoculars and examine all the wildlife. And it was pretty amazing. And every once in a while, I would call uh, the county ag commissioner or the National Wildlife uh, Foundation officer, and they'd come in. And I'd say, I, I, I think there's a there's a real California endangered kit fox there. Mm -hmm. and they would come and take pictures of it. Or I'd say, I think a bald eagle or a golden eagle's lost his way. And 
I thought they were important. They, they had seen things like that before, but a lot of them would say, it, it's very strange how these artificially constructed eucalyptus groves are now oasis for wildlife in an area where 99% is either suburban housing or, or agriculture, and there's nowhere right. for animals to go. So they flock to these places as refuges. Well, that will be, Victor, again, that's on uh, victorhanson.com. Uh, this, uh, what we were just talking about, what you're going to file later. And I'd recommend folks go deep into, into the website. You'll find other stories from Victor uh, about his, his life. Um, and you'll, there are things about Eeyore and uh, the, op the optimist and the angry reader. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderland of fun. Uh, VictorHanson.com. Well, Victor, that's all the time we have uh, today. Thank you so much, uh, Victor. And we will be back again in a, in a few more days with the next episode of the new Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. And thank you all for tuning in. I, I appreciate it a great deal. Thank you.